0: Please take out your Bibles and turn to Psalm 84. Uh, I, if you've ever been to Woodside Community Church, I preach in like this pulpit that's like a tank and a turret, and I'm pretty aggressive and active. And so if, I, if I fall over at some point today, just kind of laugh and I'll get up. I'm going to lean on this and I'm going to fall, so just be ready uh, for that. Psalm 84 is where we are going to be. I guess it's kind of cliche at this point to talk about how hard and strange Uh, The last year and a half have been COVID, cultural chaos elections. Um, I just think we should have no more elections. That's my desire. You guys even got hit by a hurricane last week, right? Everything is kind of going wrong. Then there's the small-scale sufferings. There's the difficulties that I don't know about that are going on in your life. Some of them are big picture. I spent my afternoon yesterday uh, holding hands and reading Scripture with just a dear sister who's become a mother in the faith to me who will be with the Lord in days, um, and just got to read the scriptures with her, racked with cancer, um, and just kind of falling apart before our eyes. It's been really, really hard. Like, what do you do? Where do you turn when things fall apart, as maybe they are doing for you right now? If you hear me preach more than once, you will hear me quote John Newton. I quote him regularly. He should be known for more than amazing grace. Just get his letters and read them. You will be blessed. Here's what he says in one of his most famous letters. It's titled, Christ All Sufficient. It's written to a friend whose sister is suffering and very sick. Uh, They... Man, they consoled each other differently a couple hundred years ago than we do today. Um, So read some of the old saints to see what they did. But here's how he writes. He says, How often have I longed to be an instrument of establishing you in the peace and hope of the gospel. And I have but one way of attempting it. By telling you over and over and over again of the power and the grace of Jesus. Perfect. Simple. Simple. profound. I I want to be an instrument in establishing you in the peace and the hope of the gospel while I get to be with you. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be comforted. I want you to be at peace. Um, I want to do that for my dear, dying, spiritual mother. Right There's this feeling of how do I help her? What do I do? How can I minister comfort to her? This is the only way that I can do it. By telling you over and over and over, by reminding her over and over and over of the power and the grace of the gospel and of the goodness and the kindness and the compassion of Jesus Christ. And we do that by ministering to you God's word. I point you to Christ tonight by pointing you to his word, his word, which is all about the power and grace. Of Jesus, and that's actually what Psalm 84 is about as well. I think that's especially what Psalm 84 is about. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who is never wrong, calls Psalm 84 the pearl of Psalms. I wonder what you'd have to pick if you were going to call something the pearl of Psalms. Spurgeon says it's 84. He goes on, If the 23rd be the most popular, the 103rd the most joyful, the 119th the most deeply experimental, the 51st the most plaintive, and that means sad or or mournful, then this, Psalm 84, is the most sweet of the Psalms of peace. Hmm, That's high praise from Spurgeon. Why is this Psalm so sweet and peaceful? Well, let's, let's see. But I want you to, I want to start with a question. I want you to be considering this as we go here through the course of the night. I want you to be thinking to yourself and answering honestly. And What do you, what do you most desire right now? What do you find yourself longing for? What do you crave? What are you hungry for? And what, what do you truly desire? As I read Psalm 84 for you in a moment, I want you to pay attention to the tone of this psalm. What, is it, what does it feel like? Because to me, it it feels like longing. And we're going to see that it's this longing for the Lord. And I want us to make sure from the outset that He is our focus because it it can be easy with the Psalms, especially one like this, to actually take what's all about Him and then turn it and make it all about us. It's very easy with the Psalms to make them all about our experience and our needs. And that's not unimportant, but it's secondary my desire tonight is to direct you not to yourself, but to direct you to the Lord. And that's the desire of the psalmist as well. Notice how it opens and closes. These are important markers at the beginning and end. Look at verse 1. It starts off, O Lord, Yahweh of hosts. Verse 12, it ends, O Lord, Yahweh of hosts. Right? So that's That's what's sometimes called an inclusio. It sounds like inclusion. A a sandwich is this literary device that helps us to understand the main point of something. And the main point here is that this psalmist is just entirely focused on the Lord. The Lord of hosts. We don't use that word anymore. It just means armies. He's the commander. He's the general. He's the king. He has all the strength, all the power, all the authority. And he is the focus of this psalm. And he is the desire of the psalmist. And what I want us to see tonight is that he is the longing of the heart of every Christian. I'm going to focus tonight on that longing language. Lots of people say they believe in God. Lots of people say they love God. But these terms have just become so vacuous, that they're almost meaningless today. Is there a less meaningful word today than love um, in our culture, right? That word means all kinds of things and anything people want it to mean. So I've been encouraging our people more and more to consider maybe some different language in this question. Do you have an appetite for God? Do you have any sort of actual hunger and desire for Him, for His presence? Okay, you believe and love God. Good. Sure. Are you occupied with Him? A.W. Pink defines worship as being a heart occupied with God that then expresses itself in thankfulness and praise. It's a great definition. Is your heart occupied with God? Do you delight in Him? Do you long for Him? I just want to make the case that that's simply what it means to be a Christian. John 17, 3, eternal life is knowing God in the fullest sense of the word, to know. In Philippians 3, Paul says that knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. And so he's willing to count everything else as loss only to be found in him and to know him. That's the appetite that Paul has there. That's the longing that we're talking about. The godly long to be with God. Simple point tonight. The godly long to be with God. They long for the presence of God. And what we're going to see is that the godly understand that there is a special and unique way in which God is present among His gathered people. And the godly understand that there is a necessary condition. There is something that must first be done for us, for God to be present with and among us, His sinful people. So I've got three points for you this evening. Yes, I am a Baptist minister, so three points. The first point tonight, if you are a note taker, I want us to simply see from this psalm that Christians long for the presence of God. Yes, do you believe in God? Uh, Yes, do you love uh, all that language? Good, sure. Do you long for the presence of God? Second, we're going to see that Christians long for the presence of God mediated through the people of God. Christians long for the presence of God mediated through the people of God. And then third, we're going to see that Christians long for the presence of God mediated through the Messiah of God. That's going to be the most important point. So we're going to close with Christ. Uh, The presence of God mediated through the Messiah of God. I'll give you those points again as we go through. But let's read first this pearl of psalms, this psalm of longing, this psalm of peace. Let's read and be comforted tonight together by God's Word. Let's read, and then we're going to pray that, Lord willing, we're going to be confronted with the presence of God Himself because His Word is living and active. He's actually with us. In and through his word. So, this is the most important thing you're going to do today, right now. You are going to hear the very voice of God as I read for you his word. So, pay attention. I'll read for you Psalm 84, but this is what God wants to say to you this evening How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. If you would bow with me and let's, let's pray before we continue. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you speak to us, your people. We ask now that you would give us ears to hear your voice uh, through your word. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. That includes the preaching of your word. Uh, That includes the hearing of your word. So we ask that you would help both the preaching and the hearing of your word. Father, we each of us bring various things into this room. Uh, We each of us are longing for things, uh, distracted by various things, struggling With various things. Help us for the next few minutes, Lord, to fix our eyes on you. I pray that you would reveal to us your goodness and your grace. I pray that you would engage our thoughts and our affections with your beauty and with your glory. Father, teach us and show us what it truly means to long for you, the best thing, uh, the best person. And I pray that you would help me to communicate how good and glorious you are now in this time. Father, use this word uh, to glorify your name. Use it to edify your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so point number one, Christians long for the presence of God. First question, though, we've got to figure out is is who is speaking here? Who who is the author of this psalm? It's actually a good question. The easiest answer from the heading there, I didn't read the heading, is that it is written, it says, by the sons of Korah. Uh, the, that was a family of Levites, most famous actually, for their rebellion against Moses led by the father Korah in Numbers 16. In Numbers 26, thankfully, we find that some of his sons were spared the judgment that God had passed on him and his family, and we find later that they played a role in the temple. They were some of the, the singers and the musicians, so maybe it was they who wrote the psalm. That's the easiest answer. I cannot prove this, but many especially basically everyone in the past, have argued that though it says a psalm of the sons of Korah, that doesn't necessarily mean they are the ones who wrote the psalm. They could be the, the singers, the leaders of the psalm. It could have been given to them or entrusted to them. So who wrote it? Well, many just argue that it must have been David. It just had to be David, some people will say. And I don't know, and I can't say this for sure, but man, it sure sounds like David, doesn't it? Right, keep that in mind. Right, is this David? I think this is David. What if it was him? Because look at verse 1. Look at how it starts. How lovely. Right, so this is a love song. This is, this is poetry. Literally, it translates how, how dear or, or how beloved. And what is it that is so lovely? Well, it's kind of, it's not what we'd first expect, but it's your dwelling place, God's Dwelling place, the dwelling place of Yahweh of armies. And if you're a King Jameser, and like the King James, I love the King James, if you're reading in the King James, you'll notice that it says tabernacles, right? Instead there of temple. Because that's literally what the word is in the Hebrew. This is the Hebrew word for tabernacle. And since we don't know who exactly wrote this psalm, it's hard to say if he's writing literally about the tabernacle. Remember the tent first or if he's referring to the temple with the word tabernacle. If it's David writing, it has to be the tabernacle because the temple wasn't built until after David had died. But either way, it doesn't really matter because the tabernacle and the temple served the same purpose. What were they? What were they for? What was the purpose of these structures? It's simple. They were the special place of the presence of God. This is where you went to meet with God, to be with God. And so the psalmist isn't necessarily just longing for some building, he's longing for what the building represents. He's longing for what the building mediates, which is the very presence of God himself. Look at verse 2. Pay attention to the parallelism between lines 1 and 2 and then 3 and 4. Dwelling place, verse 1, here's the longing. This is the very strong language, my soul long. Yes, Thanks for the courts of the Lord. Hey, why courts? What does he really mean? Well, the third and fourth line develop and explain what he means. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Right, so courts explained and paralleled by living God. It is God that he most desperately longs for. He first mentions the courts because that's where you went to be in the presence of God. That's where God was. And whoever wrote these Psalms, here's, here's why I think it's probably David, whoever wrote them, it's clear that there's some sort of connection between this Psalm and Psalm 42 and 43. And Psalm 42 and 43 go together. They're just kind of one Psalm. So keep a finger for a second on Psalm 84 and flip over to Psalm 42 if you'd like to look at it for a second notice how similarly the psalm starts. You probably know this one better. Psalm 42. This one is David. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. This is, man, this is really strong. I, quite honestly, this language makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I'm really, I get really animated and excited and energetic in the pulpit. I am nothing like that. And the re- I save up all my energy all week just to preach. And the rest of the week, I'm just kind of dead and quiet. I'm kind of a robot. I'm not very emotional. Uh, tears make me uncomfortable, which is sad because my family has five girls, so there's lots of tears. Um, but I just, I'm not a very emotional person. And so language like this makes me a little bit uncomfortable Tell me honestly, do you have any experience of that, of what David just said, this this soul-panting longing for God? Do you believe in God? Yes, good, that's important. Do you love God? Okay, good, yes, that's important. But again, I want to try to get behind some of those words that we so often just quickly use without thinking or definition. I'm asking, do you have an appetite for the Lord? Do you experience uh, any experience of what the psalmist calls here, soul panting, soul thirsting, longing? Hey, unpack the metaphor. Right? Here's the power of poetry. You use these symbols and these pictures, these metaphors. Look at the one he uses: as a deer pants for water. What happens if a deer doesn't get water? It dies. A deer pending for water, if that is not eventually satisfied, the deer dies. Because water is life. And so that's the language, that's the metaphor he's picking up. And the psalmist David is saying that his soul thirsts for the living God. Same language as Psalm 84. Because God himself is life. He is the water of the soul. We're working through John on Sunday mornings at our church, and John uses just the imagery and the symbolism of water um, throughout the first couple of chapters, kind of culminating in chapter 4 where he offers the Samaritan woman living water. What's he offering her? The Holy Spirit himself. He's, He's offering God himself because God is life. He is the water of the soul. The soul without God is dead, and the psalmist understands that. And so just like we long for that which is life, right? We're thirsty, we drink. We're hungry, we eat food. We don't eat, we die. Here, the psalmist is also longing for that which gives life. He's longing for that which is life. He longs for the living God. He longs for the presence of God. We just memorized for part of our family worship. We just memorized Psalm 16. It's one of my favorites. I mentioned I have four little girls. Uh, We have a fifth on the way that, Lord willing, we hope it's a girl. Um, I kind of like it. I like it being my thing. I like being the guy with all the girls. Um, And we're just trying to keep up with the bunches. Um, But. We like being the weirdos in the city that have this big, massive family. Um, So my wife is pregnant. Uh, We got to see a little bit of a scan, and we think it's a girl. Um, The doctor would not confirm or deny, Uh, but it sure looks like a girl. I think I understand how these things work. So I think it's a girl. So that's good news. Um, So fifth girl on the way. But we were memorizing this. Have you ever just kind of wrapped your mind around verse 11? Do you actually believe this or think this, Psalm 1611? In your presence... There is fullness of joy. I mean, what if we actually believed that? How would we live if we actually believed that was true? That all of the life that you need and all of that fullness of joy is actually found in God himself. You know, are you able to find great life and fullness of joy in the presence of God and of simply being with Him and spending time with Him and knowing Him and hearing from Him through His Word, talking to Him through His prayer, and then resting in His plan and promises and living your life in light of these wonderful things that He has revealed uh, to you about Himself and about what He's doing for you? We should, all of us, just be taking kind of constant stock of how we're doing spiritually. How is your soul doing? Yeah, does it, does it long for God and live for His presence? Because listen, that's the whole point of everything. This is meant to be the whole point of your life. And this is arguably the main theme that's running throughout the whole of Scripture. Right? Back to the beginning, a quick biblical theology here. Right, The story begins with God in the beginning. And we see that He is the God who is. He just Is who exists, and the very first thing we learn about this God is that He's the God who speaks, and in speaking, He creates everything. He starts off by creating a place, but then the pinnacle of His work is the creation of man in the image of God. He made them male and female, He created them, and so now we have a people. And so, we start off with a king who creates a place and then He populates it with a people that's a kingdom. And in that place, we see that God is with his people in a special, intimate, immediate, unmediated way. God has created this people for himself to be in relationship with him, to be in fellowship with him, to be present with him. You probably know the story. Genesis 3, things quickly go wrong. Right? The people reject the king. They disobey God and rebel against Him. They reject relationship with Him. They break His good and gracious law. Every relationship has law. And since He is a perfectly good and holy king, He must also be just. He must deal with sin. Sin must be punished. He had warned them, the wages of sin is death. We get so caught up with that. Why is He so mean? Like, What's what's the big deal? It's It's just some sin. It's it's just logical. Just think about it. We've just established that He is the God of life. He is the author and source of life. If sin is the rejection of God, then in sin you are rejecting the author and source of life. And so it just logically follows that the result is death. The wages of sin is death. And so the people are cast out of God's place, and ultimately they are cast out of the presence of God. Remember, that's always the point of the place. It's where God is. It's, it's home. It's, it's what we were made for. And so then starting in chapter 3, the whole rest of the story is about God graciously taking the initiative and leaping right into action to right our wrong, to fix our problem, to do something about the sin that separates us from Him. To make it possible once again for God to be present with His people. And that's what we're going to come back to at the end in point 3. But the point that I want you to see is that the presence of God is not something incidental to the story of Scripture. The presence of God is the story of Scripture. He is the living God. He created us in His image and likeness to be with Him, to live in Him. John 17, 3, eternal life is knowing Him and being with Him. This is what life is all about, and this is what God is doing. This is the whole point of the gospel. This is what God is working toward, restoring His presence among His people. It's presence. It's important. And let's be clear. I don't spend a lot of time on this, but the presence of God is not some mystical feeling. It's not some strange emotional charge. People talk about a God feeling. I just feel that God was in the room. Um, I don't know exactly what that means. Um, But you'll notice people say that always when they feel good. That's a problem. We have some special God feeling thing, and it's always a good feeling. The lights have been lowered. The the, the music is setting just the right manipulative mood. I don't know if you guys have ever, I grew up in, oh, this is wrong. My dad was a pastor. I didn't grow up in this church, but I visited and was familiar, you know, the song's over, the light's low, the guy's finishing his sermon, the music starts to play in the background, and then he starts to kind of pick and tug and pull and kind to of get people to come forward right that kind of moody manipulatively weird kind of emotional thing that's happening and it's pretty effective it feels nice but what about when you feel bad does that mean that god is not present then when you feel bad of course not right. praise god that he is just as present when i feel bad so let's be very careful. The thing that I'm not talking about, let's not make the mistake of equating the presence of God with some sort of sensory, positive, encouraging, love feeling or something. No, again, it's, sorry, that's a joke I make a lot at my church. Um, it just came out. It's not a feeling. What we're talking about here is not some sort of vagabulous, I feel good, it must be God. It uh, could have been dinner. I don't know. No, this is not a feeling. This is, this is a fact. This is a reality. This is a spiritual truth. Something that is not accessed by and dependent on some feeling. Thank God, because my feelings, I don't know about you, but I'm just moody and miserable often. Guess what God's presence is not doing? This. Because he is with me in Christ always. Again, so this is not dependent on some feeling. This This is accessed and understood by faith. Again, we'll come back to that. But first point, do you have a longing for the presence of God. Because it is the nature of being a Christian. It's just fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. is to long for the Lord and to long for His presence. Knowing Him is life. And that's how the psalm begins. Longing, fainting, singing for joy. Or I mean, The King James is actually probably a little better here. Crying out to, or maybe better yet, crying out for the living God. And I hope that that's ultimately your answer to the longing question that we began with. But I actually hope that that's not your only answer. Because, point number two, Christians long for the presence of God mediated through the people of God. So we've started with presence of God. Now we're moving on to that presence mediated through the people of God. And, and I don't want you to miss this. This is one of the reasons why I love this psalm. Notice again how he puts it. Look at the text. Notice the language. I mentioned it at the beginning. So verse 1, we have dwelling place. Verse 2, we have courts. Verse 3, we have altars. Verse 4, we have house. Skip down to verse 7, we have Zion. Verse 10, courts again, and house again. So he's using very specific language for a very specific reason. He's not just longing for God. He's also longing to be in a specific place. And it's the same thing in Psalm 42 again. Go back to Psalm 42, I'm going to make you work. You need your Bibles open in front of you. Go back to Psalm 42 again, because I think we entirely misread this psalm. When I read it a minute minute ago, I didn't read the last line of verse 2. You should have caught that and be like, oh wait, this is important. We pay a lot of attention to the first couple lines, but we almost entirely ignore the last line. As a deer, pants for flowing streams, soul my soul, pants for you, O God. My soul, thirsts for the living God. And we stop. We generally stop there. It it is, it's good, it's beautiful, it's longing, but we're Americans. We tend to read this entirely individualistically. As if this is only about our personal relationship with Jesus. But don't miss the end of verse 2. He does all that, all the longing, and then he says, when shall I come and appear before God? I said, hold on. What does that mean? Why is he concerned about being in some place to appear before God if this verse is all just about his uh, devotional life and his personal relationship with the Lord? Well, he tells us. Keep reading. In verse 3, he is sad. Why is he sad? Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. We'll see down in verse 6 that he's stuck up in the northern part of Israel, meaning he's away from Jerusalem. He is away from the place of God's presence. But it's not only that. When he remembers, when he longs, he remembers the throngs, the multitudes, the people, being with people. Worshiping God with the people of God. He is sad at the moment because he is isolated. Or in the language of our last year and a half, he's quarantined. He's social distanced. He He is sad because he is unable to gather with God's people to worship God. And that's part of what he is longing for. And I think that is ultimately what is longed for back in Psalm 84 as well. Dwelling place, courts, house. Why? That's where God is. Remember, it's tabernacle. And if you were to go back to Exodus and read the very detailed account of Exodus, you would notice that there are a lot of parallels there with the garden. Remember, original garden, special place of God's presence. Tabernacle is a picture of that. Sin separates us. All right, God goes to work, righting that wrong, restoring the possibility of presence. And that's what the tabernacle is about. So God is making that possible. He, he's creating covenant with His people. I, won't, I would love to get into a long discussion about this and talk with you. What is a covenant? Well, again, understand covenants by what we refer to as the Immanuel principle of the covenant. God frequently attaches to these covenants. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Again, that's covenant. It's all about communion. It's about God restoring the relationship that we ruined. God is restoring His Presence. He's the blessing. He is what we get. And that's what covenant is about. And that's what tabernacle was about. And so I don't know if you're like me, but you've kind of read through the Exodus before. And you're like, oh, this is narrative. And there's the miracles. And there's the chase scene and the water. This is really, really interesting. And then you get to the end and you're like, oh, what's up with the end of this story, right? It's just all these details of this tabernacle. Maybe right? you're kind of like this, this downer. What's the point? But then you get to the end of all that, push through. Chapter 40, verse 34 the cloud covers the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. You see, God has come, God is there. He is literally present with his people. And that's why the psalmist is so longing for the tabernacle. The temple, the same thing happens when Solomon dedicates the temple. The glory of the Lord fills the temple, the whole house of the Lord. It's all about the presence of God. And so this is hard for us to understand. This is why the temple was everything to the Jewish people. It was the center of the whole of their life. It's where God was, and that's where God's people want to be. And that's what explains verse 3 of our psalm. He's away from the house of God, and so he's envious of anything. The birds. I'm envious of the birds. Even they get to be at the house of God. Even a sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. But look at verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. This is kind of a trick question here. Like, who, who gets to dwell in God's house? Who, who actually gets to go inside the temple and inside the tabernacle? I think we, are, we, make a, I think we tend to make a mistake here. We tend to equate this beautiful, I'm kind of, again, I'm kind of jealous of your beautiful building here. Um, you got, we tend to equate these beautiful church buildings, these structures that we have, and we just kind of assume, oh, you know, that's like the tabernacle and the temple. It's kind of like the same thing. No. Not at all. Uh, You happily just opened those doors and walked right in here, kind of like you own this place, and kind of came down and sat down, and you were here, and you were present, and you were in the room. Listen, you don't get to go into the temple or the tabernacle ever. None of us get to go into the temple or the tabernacle ever. If we were trying to make uh, like, uh, you guys could go in the parking lot. Uh, You could be outside. There's the courts. And if we were trying to make some sort of Uh, uh, equation with this thing, then like Caleb and Neglia and Schultz, they could come into the building and then like maybe you have the Holy of Holies in there and only Caleb gets to go in there like once a year and, and that's it. You don't get to come in here. The special place of God's presence, you are not allowed to enter. And so this verse is about the blessedness of being a priest of God in the house of God because ultimately it was only the priests who truly got to enter into God's presence. And so skipping a lot of things and just skipping ahead real quick, we know that when we get to the New Testament, everything changes. The temple, the curtain is torn. All of a sudden, it's open. It's, the way is made Uh, clear. Uh, A temple was a special place of God's presence. The priests are the only ones who get to minister and serve in the special place. You had to go to the specific place to be near the presence of God. You had to be a specific person to be in the presence of God. But then you get to the New Testament, and you start reading things like John chapter 4, right? The Jews and the Samaritans are arguing. It's about the place of worship. The place is what matters. Where do we go? What's the place? Verse 23, Jesus says, but the hour is coming. And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. We can't even, we can't grasp how huge that was and how different that was. How is that different? Why is this, how is this possible? We read in 1 Peter 2.9 that we are a chosen race and a royal priesthood. Oh, Come on, if you know your Old Testament, that's huge. Priests are the only ones who could enter into the place of God's presence. Now, here comes Peter and says, Oh, by the way, Christians, you are priests. Not only that, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Listen, for a first century Jew, they would just What? The temple was everything. And here comes Paul saying, You're the temple. That thing, that place where God is present, that's now you. We just read in Exodus, First Kings, God fills the temple with his cloud of glory. And now here Paul says that God does the exact same thing with his people, filling them, being present not only with but in them. You see, God is now no longer especially present in a place but in a people. The point I'm trying to make is that while, yes, God personally takes up residence and dwells in each individual Christian, John 14, 23, just write this down and meditate on this while you go to bed tonight, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. So, but yes, while that's wonderfully and gloriously true, when Paul writes that you are a temple, I'm from the South, that you is plural. Right? It's, it's, it's y'all. Right? It's, it's the same in Ephesians 2, where he uses the same metaphor. We are members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you all also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And do you see how corporate that it is? Paul twice says together, together. It's ultimately the church together that is a dwelling place for God. So yes, God no longer dwells in a place. He dwells in a people. But that is a people. I don't want us to miss this. Biblically, that is a people that is together. And I want us to get this because we have all gotten too comfortable over the last year plus with staying home and with Zoom. And some people are doing things called virtual church. That's not a thing, by the way. And so while, yes, again, I I hope you're longing for the presence of God. I hope also that you are recognizing the unique and wonderful way in which God is specially present in the corporate gathering of his people. And I hope that you are longing especially for his presence mediated here. Yes, praise God. He is present with us always. He will never leave you nor forsake you, for you are with me. Where shall I go from your presence? He is a very present help in time of trouble. The upright shall dwell in his presence. Yes, yes, and amen. Praise God. But God is also present in a very unique way among his church, gathered together with one another, with him to worship him. And so Spurgeon says in the opening to one of his sermons on this psalm, he says, When David was far away from the services of the tabernacle, he envied the birds that had built their nests near the sacred shrine. And Christians in like manner, when they are debarred from the holy associations of Christian fellowship and united worship, always sigh over the lost privilege of meeting with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Ah, I think that's wonderful. Were you at all sighing? Were you, were you sad over the lost privilege of meeting with your brothers and sisters in Christ last year? If so, that's a very, very good thing. That is a very healthy sign of spiritual life. Yes, Christians long for the presence of God, but they also understand that there is a special way in which God is present with and in His people gathered together for corporate worship. And so Christians always long to be present with God's people. This is why I'm increasingly convinced that you simply cannot be a Christian and choose not to gather with other Christians. You just can't. I'm not not talking about those who long to but are providentially hindered. Uh, My dear sister, our dear sister Lydia, cannot gather with us at church. I am not talking uh, about that. I am talking about those who claim to be Christians but choose not to gather with God's people. The people who claim to love Christ But have nothing to do with the people of Christ. That's not a thing. You can't do that. You can't say, hey, I really love you, Matt. Hey, your kids, I just hate them. They're they're so annoying. Nope. That doesn't work. Um, We're not friends. You cannot love me and not love my children. No. Christians have an appetite for God's people. Church, this has been something that's been weighing on me. God loves his people. This sounds pretty simple. Uh, it's pretty profound. Look at what God has done to be with his people. Again, how dare we, how dare you, let's be as, like, as, as confrontational as possible because I get to leave. Um, how, how dare you dislike that which God loves? How dare you even consider hating that which God loves and sent his son to die for? How arrogant do we have to be to think that it is okay for us to say, ah, that person, nah, I don't like that person. You don't have that option, Christian. You don't get to do that Um, because God loves that person, and God has rescued and redeemed that person. Look at what God has done to be with his people. Therefore, those who love God will also then passionately love God's people and long to be with them. Just go read the book of 1 John. A Christian life is a life together. The church is God's people gathered together to worship God together. Do you love and long for that time each week? Church, do you recognize the great privilege it is to have to gather together regularly with brothers and sisters in Christ? Yeah. Just think about, there's, I mean, there are some Christians in Afghanistan, right? Let's, let's consider them. Right? Let's consider what they're going through and their inability to gather right now. And yet we take something like this for granted, You recognize what a privilege it is. Uh, The church just blessed us with 12 weeks of sabbatical. It was wonderful. We were away and we were resting. And so, again, visiting 12 different churches in the South where everybody thinks it's the Bible Belt, church, it's hard to find good preaching. I listened to some really bad sermons while I was away. You guys are blessed to have, not just one, but multiple men uh, who can faithfully minister to you God's Word. You need to know what a privilege um, that is and love and long for the worship of God and the, the preaching of God's Word and doing all of that uh, together. Christians long to be with Christians because God mediates His presence in a special way through His people gathered together. That clock's too far away to see, so I'm just going to pretend that I can't see it. Finally, point number three. I'll be quick. Christians long for the presence of God mediated through the Messiah of God. Uh, We're just having to skip over a lot of important stuff there in the middle. Uh, I've chosen to use the word mediated on purpose. Uh, Again, in the garden, God's presence with his people was unhindered and immediate. Uh, That's not the case anymore. That's kind of like the core claim of mysticism, is that you can still experience God's uh, immediate, unmediated presence. No, no, no. Be careful. That's not biblical. Because again, remember the problem of Genesis 3. God's people cast out of his presence because of sin. Uh, Sin separates. Sin separates. So our sin separates us uh, from him. How then, all of a sudden, did we get to all that we just read in the previous point of God making his home with us? Uh, Of Christians being his priests and temple. Of his perfect and holy presence being mediated through his imperfect and sinful people. The wages of sin is death. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. I say a lot. I think I stole this from somewhere. I don't remember. Like, if I knew you completely and fully, I would not waste my time speaking to you. If you knew me completely and fully, you would never waste your time listening to me. But then God knows us, church. He knows us and loves us. That's the most amazing thing. Uh, You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. God is not. He's perfectly pure and holy. He cannot abide. He cannot allow. Sin. Something must be done about the sin that separates from him, the sin that brings death, and that something is God's Messiah. Look at verse 9. We're not doing justice to this psalm, but just look at verse 9. Just forget all the other stuff. Verse 9. It's the most important part. Behold, our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. And what does that mean? Notice that he's not there calling God our shield. Look down at verse 11. He will call God that in verse 11, but he's not in verse 9. He is speaking to God. You, God, behold, look at our shield. So something, someone other than God himself. Well, who? He tells us, look on the face of your anointed. And what is that word anointed in the Hebrew? Messiah. That's the word Messiah. It just means anointed one. And so Calvin writes, again, Calvin just assumes that the psalmist is David. He says, Knowing, however, that his kingdom was merely a shadow and type of something more illustrious, there is no doubt that in uttering these words, the object which he aspired after was to obtain the divine favor through the intervention of the mediator of whom David himself was a type. We are thus taught that the only way in which God becomes reconciled to us is through the mediation of Christ, whose presence, oh, I love this, whose presence scatters and dissipates all the dark clouds of our sins. Oh, that's good language. We can't write like that anymore. So the king was anointed. He, he was the protector of the people. He was, according to this verse, the shield of the people. He was the representative of the people before God. And as the king goes, so goes the people. Because God always works through representatives. So, whether this is a call to look to David or whoever the king was at that time, we know that ultimately it points us forward to the anointed one, the king who was also prophet and priest. And so the call is not for God to look to us. Please know, God, I do, do not look to me. Do not look to my righteousness or lack thereof. No, 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 look to my Messiah. Look to my representative. Look to my mediator. God mediates his holy presence to his sinful people through his perfect mediator, his Messiah, Jesus Christ. And when we're introduced to Jesus in John chapter 1, we read in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, the exact same word used in the Greek translation of Psalm 84, tabernacle. This is why Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the temple. He is literally God present with his people. And so he says in the next chapter, John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They're confused. What are you talking about? It took us 46 years to build this, John 2, 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So what we just talked about in point two, we, the church, are the temple of God because Christ was first the temple of God. God can be with us and in us because He first was Christ. Christ come to be destroyed. Christ come to be torn down. Why? Again, to solve that sin problem, to solve that which separates us from God, to take on that sin and to die the death that it deserved so that we could be restored to God. Notice that the verse says that He is our shield. Again, if you think about it, Think about it. You got a shield. You're holding a shield here. What is a shield? A shield is a substitute, right? The shield stands in front of me. It it takes my place. It takes the harm and the death that was aimed at me. That's Jesus. He has shielded us from the righteous wrath of God that we deserved for our sins, and that is how God can be with us and in us. Only because Christ has torn down the wall, the curtain, the separation. Only because he has already died our death in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. And church, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the thing that God is up to always. He is restoring the possibility of his presence with his people. And he first had to deal with the sin of his people. And he dealt with the sin of his people through the death of his Son our mediator, God with us, and that's Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you you long for him? God cannot be with you until you are in Christ. Have you repented of your sins and trusted in him? And and, and here's why a Christian longs for God, because this is the God that we serve, the God who seeks and saves his people. The God whom we create a problem, he provides the solution. And he sends his own son to die in our place. Church, that's the best news in the world. And we don't believe it. We, just, we don't live like we believe it. Because um, if we did, oh, church, it would be an amazing thing. Because nothing can touch that. Stage four crippling cancer cannot touch that. Now, my dear sister Lydia is safe in the hands of the Lord. Um, we experience loss she's going to experience great gain because of this, because of Christ. And so, are you, are you concerned about your soul at all? Have you demonstrated, um, uh, we have demonstrated uh, these last year or so, that we are very concerned about our physical health during this pandemic. Again, that's fine, that's good. But are we concerned at all about our spiritual health? Martin Lloyd-Jones, on this uh, sermon on Psalm 84, writes this. I I found this particularly timely for our current situation. The ultimate secret of every godly Christian. Whoa, this is big. Don't pay attention. The ultimate secret of every, every godly Christian, the real secret of this psalmist, as he puts it so plainly here, is that he has come at last to realize that the most priceless thing in his life is his soul. The soul within me goes on for all eternity. God has put it into me. God breathed into man so that he became a living soul. That is what stamps men and women as being made in the image of God. My soul is the most precious thing of all. That is what I want to safeguard and protect. Church, amen. Let's let's not forget that right now. As we are rightly concerned with protecting our bodies, we should be concerned about that. God gave us bodies. Bodies are good. They are who we are. Physical is good. Creation is good. But it doesn't seem like we're at much risk right now of forgetting the goodness of the body and the necessity of caring for the physical. Everyone is aware and concerned about that. That's not bad. But we must not forget that the soul is the most precious thing of all and of infinite value. And it is only the good news of the gospel. The good news that we, the church, have been given and charged with speaking that is the cure for the sin-sick soul. As a church, I'll encourage you with this again. The, the world can do everything better than we can, except for grace in the gospel. Don't try to outcompete the world on anything else. We've got this thing. Let them do the other things. We've got the gospel, and we've got grace. And so that's how we best minister to and care for people. Be concerned for your health, but are you concerned at all for your spiritual health? Be safe. But is your soul safe in Jesus? Have you repented and believed? And if you have, then God is for you and God is with you and nothing could change that. How could we ever doubt and distrust Him? How could we ever worry? Do we see that what He's been doing from the very beginning, He created us for Him and He is good and He is life and life with Him is the ultimate good. In His presence there is fullness of joy. And that's what he's after for you. He's not miserable. He's not a miser. He's not just trying to make your life miserable. No, he's working things out perfectly for your ultimate good, which is the fullness of joy, which is an experience of him and all his beauty and all his glory. That's what he made you for. And you did everything you possibly could not to be with him. You rejected him. You rebelled against him. And yet, he runs after you. He sends his own son to die instead so that you could be redeemed and restored. Again, do we understand the lengths that God has gone to save our soul? There is great joy to be found there, church. That is why verse 10, one day in his courts, one day with God is better than a thousand elsewhere. Four, verse 11, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. He is life and light. He is safety and protection. And he gives, as the King James better puts it, grace and glory. And do you believe this verse? Uh, I don't know if I do sometimes. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And do you believe that right now? And no matter how bad your circumstances seem, circumstances do not change God's promises. He is good. And no good thing does he withhold from his children. He is withholding no good thing from my dear sister who is stricken and suffering with cancer are you prepared to let God determine what is a good thing for you? Are you going to continue to demand, or are you going to continue to demand good things as defined by you? Romans 8, 12, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And church, he's done it. He already has in Christ. So love him, Long for him. His goodness is not determined by your current circumstances, but by the cross. And his goodness is infinitely displayed there. And so in him you are infinitely blessed. Three times, verse 4, 5, and 12. You are blessed with God himself. And so what I want for you is for you to long for him, to love to be with him, and to love to be with his people. Verse 12, trust him because he has given you his son, and he is why this is the pearl of psalms, the psalm of great peace, because Jesus Christ is our peace no matter what, and so find great joy and hope in him. Uh, church, I love you very much. I'm very thankful that I get to be here with you. We're going to be praying that for you guys, um, and God is very, very good and gracious, and so we're going to pray now as we close that you'll find joy in Jesus. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Father, my words have been many. I pray that your word would be central. I pray that your word would be the focus. I pray that your spirit would come and work in our hearts in accordance with that word. Father, fill us with this longing. Father, we fall so short of what it is uh, that we see here expressed in this psalm. Father, forgive us for our apathy sometimes when it comes to the things of God. Forgive us for how much more we long and love and pursue the things of the world. Father, how foolish. Help us to believe that these things are true. Help us to believe that fullness of joy is found in you, that life itself is found in being with you. And Father, shape and mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for Gateway Church. I thank you for what you have been doing in their midst. Um, Father, You love Your people and You love Your church. And so we ask and pray that You would build this church and that You would do it for Your glory. We pray that You would build it upon the foundation of Your Word. We pray that You would give the elders here much wisdom and much um, conviction uh, that the Word is the only hope of this church. And as the Word goes forth from this pulpit in the power of the Spirit, we pray that You would save sinners, bring people from death to life and build your church, and bless these saints, Lord. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. So we ask for your help now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.